Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In this week's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer continues in the series, A Life That Pleases God. Have you ever wondered why it's so hard to wait? Isaiah 40, 30-31 says, Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Does having faith in Christ help the wait? If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message, Faith Waits. like to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We've been going through Hebrews chapter 11, what is often called the great hall of faith, a place where God highlights what faith looks like. He defines what faith is, and he gives us examples all throughout the rest of the chapter in hopes that we will, Hebrews 12 is going to say, look back upon this great cloud of witnesses, these people who testify, that it's worth it to live a life of faith. So we're preaching this morning on faith waits, and no, this is not an abstinence message, for those of you who are wondering. Uh, Faith waits is actually just talking about, as our songs have implied this morning, we're talking about waiting on God, waiting on the Lord. Faith causes us to wait on Him. And instead of looking at a single individual, we're going to look at a group of individuals. It's not just Abraham, it's not just Sarah, it's not just, you know, Isaac, It's going to be Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, because Hebrews 11, 13 talks about these all died in faith. He's talking about those that he had just been previously talking about, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and their family. And we're going to see that they all waited upon God. They waited on God's promises. They waited on God's place. They waited on God's praise. But before we get into that, we need to make sure that we understand what this discipline of waiting on God is. Waiting is not just let go and let God or just kind of holding God to a clock and just hold on, he's coming kind of a thing. Psalm 27, 14, twice David used this term, and whether God says wait for or wait on, we're communicating the same thing. He writes, wait for the Lord and be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And this is not a passive waiting. This isn't just sitting back, doing nothing, you know, just folding our arms and saying, well, God, it's about time you show up. Uh, This kind of waiting is, it means to look to or to anticipate something. And so while we're being faithful to God, while we're living obediently, while we are striving, while we're working, as we're moving forward, as we're doing what God told us to, to do, our focus is on him, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And so that's what it means to wait on God. It means that we continue to do what God calls to do. We continue to do what we know is right. We continue to live by faith, even though maybe everything around us is saying give up. Everything around us is saying quit. You don't have the energy for this. You feel like I do when I get on the elliptical machine. Anybody else? You know, you get on there, and I know I'm not even two or three minutes in, and my, my brain is already saying, give this up. You know, this isn't going to do any good. Wouldn't you much, much rather just get off? Amber's not even in the room. She's not going to know you gave up and quit. You get those thoughts too, right? You get this little voice in the back of your head, this demonic voice that wants my body to perish before it's time. And so you're, you're going and you're going and, and you feel so proud of yourself when you push on and you persevere because your mind is pondering and thinking about, if I do this, you know, I'm going to be a healthier person. If I do this, I'm going to lose a little weight, maybe fit into, you know, some of these clothes that I haven't been able to fit into. And so that encourages you. It spurs you to continue to give effort. This is the concept of waiting. It means to persevere in the right course of action, even though every voice in your head is saying, quit, give up, stop. It's not worth it. Keep going. Faith waits upon the Lord. It's looking to him. It, it means we're persevering in obedience, expecting a positive outcome because God is there, because God is coming and God rewards this. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson, but there's an iconic scene where he's sitting around a campfire and uh, he's got this flag in his hand that his son had been working on who had just, uh, had just been killed. And he's working on this flag. He's sitting around the campfire. Morale is at an all-time low. And the men are just discouraged. Some of their families have been killed. Their houses have been burned for the cause of the American Revolution. 
And then the scene just kind of fades out and it fades on. Now the, that same group of soldiers that were sitting discouraged around the campfire are now plodding down the road and they're discouraged. And you just hear the, the clopping of, of the horse's hooves. You, you hear just the dull thud of boots that are marching, not even in rhythm. They're just kind of going down the road. Heads are down. Uh, morale's really down there. And you just hear the, the clattering of the, the wagon wheels down the path. And there's a little fife going on in the background, but there's no background music playing at that time. They're discouraged. And then the camera pans to the back where you see, you know, old Mel, and he's carrying that flag that he and his son had been working on, and he raises it high, and he starts riding alongside of the troops. And as soon as they look to that flag, their, heart, their heads lift up, and a smile crosses their face, and they raise their hand in the air. Some of them, they raise their hat, and they begin to cheer as he rides to the front of the line. Now, nothing changed. Nothing changed except their perspective. Now, these are men who are willing just to kind of keep plodding along, doing what they're called to do, fighting the battle they've been sent out to fight. But when they looked onto that raggedy old flag that he had brought forward, it gave them hope. It was a promise of a future homeland that was to come. And I think very much in the same way, God, God's children, we can grow tired in doing what God has called us to do, can't we? You ever just get, you know, maybe you get into a tough part of your marriage, you get into a tough relationship with your kids, you come to a place where it's it's tough to be the only Christian at work, it gets hard being persecuted, or maybe you've gone through some kind of hurt in church before, and you just, you feel like you're discouraged, maybe you don't want to do your ministry anymore, and you just want to walk away, and that little voice, that little elliptical voice in the back of your head that says, quit, it's not worth it, give up, stop, don't do this anymore, you don't have to take that. And we just get discouraged and we just kind of plod along, living obediently as we know how to. How do we get, how do we raise our heads? How do we smile again? How do we get hope and find joy? It's by looking not onto a raggedy flag, but to an old rugged cross where we remember what Jesus has done for us. We remember where Jesus is now and we think about where Jesus is inviting us to. And that gives us hope to raise our hats once again and to cheer and to move on and to press on in persistent obedience, waiting on the Lord, waiting for the God's strength, waiting for God to bring out an expected outcome. That is a life of faith. It's the life that Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob exhibited in Hebrews chapter 11. So let's look at that. Faith waits on God's promises. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. He says, they all died in faith. And unless you happen to be alive at the time of Jesus' return, each one of us is gonna die someday. No, it's not fun to talk about, but it's a reality. And in fact, I'd say if you're not ready to face death, you're not ready to live appropriately because we're just gonna live for temporary, momentary little pleasures and we're not gonna live for eternally significant things. And so he reminds us here that we're all gonna die someday, but we wanna die like Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob died. We want to die in faith. And that simply means that we are going to remain persistently trusting God all the way to the very end. We're not going to walk away from him. We're not going to, the word is apostatize. We're not going to be apostates. Uh, It just comes from the Greek word apostasia, which just means it's translated falling away in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. Uh, Apo is a prefix that means away from. And the the root word is histomai, which means to stand. And so you're standing away from something. You're disassociating with. Uh, Today, when we do that with Jesus, the term we use isn't apostasy anymore as much as it is deconverting. Is it possible to deconvert? You may think yes, but hang on. Uh, It's possible for a person to go to church, to do Christian things, and to walk away and to not die in faith. You die rejecting God, standing away from him. But this person did not lose their salvation. Remember, John 10, 27, 29, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and I give unto them what kind of life? Eternal life. When does eternal life begin? The moment Jesus gives it to you. So either you have eternal life and it lasts forever or you had temporary life. But my God doesn't promise me temporary life. Well, what do we do then? How do we explain these people who come to church, they pray a prayer, they get dunked, they join the church, and then all of a sudden they walk away, they abandon God, they apostatize, they stand away from him, they disassociate with God, they deconvert. What is that person? 
Well, 1 John 2, 19 reminds us, they went out from among us because they were not of us. They walked away. They disassociated with Jesus. They're the, in the parable of the soils, they're the rocky soil. Remember the parable of the soils that Jesus told? There were four different kinds of soils, weren't there? And these different soils, only one of them was obviously unsaved. It's that hard path where the, where the seed, which is the word of God, just bounces right off their heart. Do you want to hear about Jesus? No, I hate it. I hate you, God. I hate you. I hate your haircut. I don't want to hear anything about this. Walk away. That's the hard soil. They're clearly and obviously unsaved. They're defiant about Jesus to the very end. The other three soils all look like they have some measure of life, don't they? It springs up. And we don't know which one's going to, you know, be truly saved, which one's going to bear fruit. But think about this. Only one of those soils was truly saved. Two of those three soils that had something growing were still unbelievers. Two of those three soils that looked alive, they did live-looking things. They came to church. They said the right words. Maybe they prayed. Maybe they joined a church. They did a number of things, but they weren't truly born again. They weren't truly alive. They never bore fruit. There was no root found in them. They weren't rooted in God. They weren't part of the vine, John 15. They did not bear fruit in him. Instead, Matthew 13, 21 describes them in that parable of the soils. He says, for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. We get so excited when somebody's like, woohoo, they made a profession of faith. I get excited about that too, but I'm always like hesitant. I'm like, well, let's watch. Let's wait. Let's see if it's true conversion. If it's true conversion, it's gonna change their life. It's going to lead to increasing amounts of obedience. It's going to lead to fruit bearing. It says, yet he has no root in himself. He's not connected to the life of God, but he endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. It's this idea of apostatizing again. He falls away. So not everybody who comes to church, not everybody says, I believe in Jesus is, is going to heaven someday. Remember, Jesus said in that day, that day when we will be reckoned with God, there'll be many who say, Lord, Lord. They'll call Jesus Lord. So it's not just what we say with our mouth. It's, it's what we believe in our heart that leads to how we live. We live a converted life. You're not earning your salvation, but as a result of our salvation, it necessarily means we live a changed life. He says, but there's gonna be some who on account of the word, you're gonna go through difficulty, you're gonna go through trial, something didn't go your way, you're gonna fall away from God. We don't do that. We die in faith. It's a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. God's true children will remain true children. Doesn't mean you won't fall, it won't, doesn't mean you're not gonna waver in your faith. Doesn't mean you're not gonna struggle. Doesn't mean you're not gonna miss church from time to time. Doesn't mean that maybe you're gonna have bad thoughts about a driver who cuts you off. We all struggle. We have a flesh. The Bible says the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. That war is an evidence of our conversion, that we are fighting that flesh that was within us. But we don't fall away from God. We don't permanently walk away. We don't stand away from God to disassociate ourselves and to deconvert from him. We die in faith. Verse 13 says, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, and greeted them from afar. So we know that there's a promise out there. We can see it. We greet it. We welcome it. It's what it means. It means to, to welcome it in from afar. We see it. But we haven't received these promises yet. That the reason you're following Jesus, the reason I'm following Jesus, is not because of what Jesus can give me right now today. Do we need to hear that message? The reason we follow Jesus, the reason I read the Bible, the reason I pray, the reason I come to church, it's not so that God will make my life good and easy and inconvenient today. That's called the prosperity gospel, that the reason I receive the gospel of Jesus is so he can help me in my earthly life, to make me healthier, so I can make more money, so I have more enjoyable family relationships. People who promise you that, who believe that the hope of the Bible is just how you can live a better earthly life today. That is a form of the prosperity gospel, that Jesus is just here to feed you and to heal you and to give you things right now, but not so much about the things to come. He says here, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised. They didn't get those things. In fact, opposite of the prosperity gospel, what did Jesus promise us for following him? He promised us suffering, promised us difficulty, Paul told Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
You don't get a lot of folks wanting to receive Jesus with that message, but it's a true message. Jesus himself said things like this in Matthew 10. Do not think that I think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Dividing even fam familial relationships together that sometimes for your faith in Jesus Christ, your mama ain't gonna talk to you anymore. That if you're a Jew in this world or you're a Muslim and you go to put your faith in Jesus, somebody's gonna turn over your picture on the mantle and, and declare openly, my child is dead. That for your faith in Jesus, it's gonna, sometimes gonna harm your earthly relationships. And he says, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Jesus said in John 15, 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus, what are they gonna do to you? <laughs> they're, gonna, they're gonna persecute you too. In other words, if you try to live the life Jesus did, if you're gonna teach the things that Jesus did, people on earth aren't going to respond too kindly to you. What kind of things did they do to Jesus? They lied about Jesus. Can people lie about us just for trying to follow the Lord in good faith? They can and they will. I have been lied about in every single ministry I've ever had since I was 21 years old. Every church, even on the mission field, I would get lied about. I've had crazy slanderous things spoken about me just for trying to preach truth, just for trying to get the gospel out to people. It happens. And it shouldn't shock us when that happens. It shouldn't rock our faith to the point where we're like, well, I'm not going to church anymore. I got lied about right here in my own church. I'm not, I can't worship there anymore. Why not? Did Jesus get lied about? He did. Did Jesus stop his ministry? He did not. Jesus uh, got things stolen from him. Remember who kept Jesus' books? Who held the money bag in Jesus, amongst Jesus' 12? It was Judas. That brother was on the take. He's stealing from Jesus. Jesus, at the very end of his life, had nothing left, and they gambled for his clothing. Can you have people steal from you just for being a believer? Yeah, you can. I've, I've been stolen from several times in ministry in churches. My very first ministry as I was a youth and music minister, not only did I not get a severance when I had to leave, but I didn't get my last month's pay. I didn't have enough money to pay first month's rent on an apartment trying to figure out what to do with our life next. And in one of my church plants, I had a church member steal $1,500 from us. And this is back in like 20 some years ago. And to a church planter, that's a lot of money. Do you walk out on God and say, well, if this is how God's people are gonna be, then I want nothing to do with God or his people anymore. I'm walking away from church. I'm gonna do online church from here on out. Online church always looks really good if you're just trying to get something for you. But church isn't about just for us. We don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but so we can encourage one another, Bible says. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. We come to church with the intention of interacting with other humans to stir them up, Bible says, to love and good works, to goad them, to prompt them. Hey, you want, why don't you join me in my community group? Hey, would you be in my new group? Hey, would you like to join me in this ministry we're doing on August 19th, Impact Weekend? Would you like to join me in that? You know, so we stir one another up to love and good works. We can't do that online. But sometimes when we get hurt, we want to walk away from relationships. We want to walk away from church. Sometimes we want to wake, walk away from our kids and we put distance there. We just stop talking to our kids. Or sometimes we can put distance between us and our mate. My mate hurt me a couple of times, so I never want to be hurt like that again. So I walk away from that. I'm not going to pers persevere in what God has asked me to do toward my mate, toward my kids, because I'm just tired and I don't want to be hurt like that again. Waiting on God means persevering in doing what God called you to do, trusting that the outcome that God promises, it's good. We don't just do things because it works, we do it because it's right. And so we persevere in what is right and we keep looking unto Jesus who suffered in all these ways. So we persevere, we wait on the Lord because we're looking for a future hope. It says here that Abraham, Sarah, and company, they says they greeted them, they welcomed them and greeted these blessings from afar off. I don't have to be blessed today to continue to persevere in what's right. That's what that means. I don't have to have immediate blessing today to stay faithful to God. I don't have to have immediate blessing to stay faithful to my mate. I don't have to have immediate blessing to stay faithful, to hold my children to God's standards. I don't have to have immediate blessing to continue coming to church or to do right by God where in my place of business. I persevere. I'm waiting on the Lord. So he says, we greet them from afar off. It means to recognize something and to welcome something as family, but it's far off. It's something I know is coming. It's something I'm looking forward to it being a part of my life, but it's not here for right now. That's the blessing of God. 
It's like those of you who have ever had a loved one who went to war. My father-in-law, Gary Myers, he was uh, in the Vietnam War. And my wife and I were cleaning out their basement one day. We'd come across a shoebox. We're like, where should we put this? And come to find out, it's a whole bunch of letters that they passed back and forth at a time of war. There was even audio recordings. Evidently, that was a thing back then. I'm going to make you a, a tape. And they would record each other's voice and go back and forth. And out of respect for them, we didn't read or listen to any of it. But it indicated to us that there's a period of time where these two ones who loved each other dearly were separated because of a time of war. But it meant, but they were still greeting one from afar off. They, it's something that they, I know you're going to come home. I know you're going to be here someday. I'm looking forward to that day. I am preparing myself for that day when you're going to be home. But I know that my reward is still in the future. Right now, you've got a job to do. And in a very real sense, that is what a believer is right now. Our blessings are afar off. We see them. We greet them. We welcome them. We know it's coming. But right now, we're at a time of war. We're in spiritual battle. We're wearing spiritual armor. Read Ephesians 6. And so when you're at a time of war, this is not a time of relaxation and peace. We're not complaining that when I'm at a time of war, I don't have a silly posturepedic out there or a purple mattress, you know, out there in Afghanistan. I, I expect to suffer a little bit. My reward is coming. It's after the war. We greet it from afar off. We don't just try to live our best life now. Number two, we see that faith waits on God's place, that God has a place for us. We're reminded of this even in John 14, verse 2, aren't we? He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'd go and prepare a place for you. Why does God bother telling us about this place that's coming, this place that he's making for us? It's to give us encouragement because Jesus knows he's about to send these guys out and they're going to get beat up on every continent on earth. And he is giving them some encouragement. Keep going. Wait on me. Persevere in what you know to be right because in the end, you're going to look back and you're gonna say it's worth it. But persevere. In my Father's house, there's a place for you. Now, he says there's many rooms here. That's a little different if you're used to reading the King James Version like I did as a kid. Uh, he says, in my Father's house, there's many mansions, right? And y'all were looking forward to the mansion thing. You don't like the word uh, house quite so much in many rooms. Uh, you were thinking, I grew up watching... Uh, lifestyles of the rich and famous. Remember Robin Leitch? And he'd take you to all these households of all these rich people of a lifestyle that you and I are never gonna have. And that's what I thought God was promising me as a kid. I thought I was gonna get 20 acres of my own lot with this giant 20,000 square foot house. I mean, for real. I thought I was gonna have two swimming pools and a bowling alley in my basement. And to a little kid, that's what, I guess that's heaven. And so I thought that's what I was looking forward to. And the rest of my life is just going to be, you know, you know sipping on a cold root beer out by the pool and, and reading books. What God is saying here, actually, the better translation is rooms. Remember, it's not our house that we're looking forward to, but we're going to be part of the, the Father's house. And in that house, we have many rooms. This word room means it's a permanent dwelling as opposed to a temporary living place. A tent is a temporary dwelling. A hotel room is a temporary dwelling. Often we'll go to these places we won't even unpack because we're only gonna be there for a little bit of time. We treat that place a little differently than we would our actual home. And God is promising us here that there's a place that is being prepared for you. Live for that place. That there's a house and there's many rooms within that house that the Father has and he's got a place there for us. I think a best way to understand heaven that I've seen is... My wife and I served as missionaries for 13 years, and we would all go to different difficult places around the world. And some of us, we'd serve in areas where the ground was really hard. The people didn't want to respond to the gospel. We'd be serving in places where there's mud-packed floors. We'd be serving in places where the people were suffering and struggling, and maybe we ourselves didn't have access to good medical care. We feel isolated from our family. We miss out on weddings and funerals and graduations, and we just feel completely disconnected. And it's hard serving overseas like that. But once a year, we would have something called the AGM, Annual General Meeting. And the company we were with, they would rent out this huge hotel, and it had to be, because there were about a 1,000 personnel that were going there at that time. And they'd rent out this huge hotel and every family had their own rooms, a place where they belong. But we were all together in this AGM. And we would arrive there and there'd be people that we'd see that we haven't seen in a long time, people we trained with, people we maybe served with at one time and they went to a different mission field and people that our kids used to know. And they, there'd be all kinds of hugging and laughter. They'd be crying, they'd be praying. 
there'd be times we'd stay up late talking and just sharing what God is doing in our hearts and lives. And all throughout this week, we're just running across people that we know and love, people that we've worked with, people that we've come off the field uh, for a period of rest to get to know again and to reconnect and find out what God's doing. That's a better picture of what heaven is like. It's this grand house where all of God's children are and where they live, and we are tripping over one another and just re-encountering one another, people who have come off of difficult lives. Not all of you have easy lives, do you? Some of you right now are struggling hard. You got health issues that maybe nobody else even knows about. You got family issues, you got work issues, and you're tired. And God says, keep going, persevere, wait on the Lord. There is something coming that's gonna make all of this effort worth it. Keep going. And there will be a time because I have a house that I'm preparing for you and you've got a space there. There's a place for you. It's not here on earth. Don't settle in too hard here. Treat it like you would a hotel. Some of you don't even bother unpacking. There's a place where we belong and it's not here, but God is preparing that place for us. And that's to give us encouragement to keep going. In the meantime, we have church. It's supposed to be a little foretaste of heaven. It's supposed to be a little picture of the fellowship that we have. We go out into the world, we, go, we have our jobs, we have our families, we have areas of suffering, but we come together and we encourage one another. Well, Abraham and them did not receive the promises. Verse 13, the last part of it says, rather they acknowledged, it's a word that means to confess, it's the Greek word homo legeo, homo meaning the same, legeo, word, that you're willing to say the same thing that God does about something. They confess something is true that they were two things, strangers and exiles. Stranger is the word xenos. We get the word xenophobia. It's somebody who uh, does not like getting out in public, does not like strangers. They don't like people that they don't know. Uh, a stranger is somebody that, that is unfamiliar to us. They're unlike us. Maybe they have a different language. They dress differently. They smell different than us. Uh, the Bible says we need to look at ourselves as strangers in this world not a part of this world system. He says, also, we are exiles, somebody who is outside of their homeland. An exile is someone who isn't where they're supposed to be. It isn't in their homeland. It's not where they belong, what's familiar to them. They're outside of that. They're an exile. In fact, the Greek word that's used there, we get the word peripatetic, means to walk around. It's a traveler. It's a, someone who's passing through somewhere. The Bible says that we are to confess, we're to acknowledge and agree with God, this isn't my home. I'm a stranger here. I'm not like everybody else. I shouldn't try to be like everybody else here. And I'm an exile. I'm outside of where I want to be, but I'm traveling there. I'm going to home. This isn't home, but I'm going to home. I'm traveling. It's like that old hymn used to say, uh, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue, and angels beckon me through heaven's open door, and what? And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. That's how a believer's supposed to feel. We're not supposed to feel comfortable here on earth. We're supposed to acknowledge that we're pilgrims, we're strangers, we're exiles from our home. Don't get too worked up that this life isn't as comfortable as you wanted it to be, because this isn't your home, and it's not mine. Verse 14 says, for those who speak thus, those who are declaring that this world is not my home, he says, those who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Those who speak, speak is in the present tense. It's something that we are constantly reminding ourselves of. You go through a hard time in life, what do we tell ourselves? It's not my home. This is not my home. It's in the present tense. It means it's something that we are continually reminding ourselves. When life gets hard, it's not my home. Somebody hurts my feelings, this is not my home. I get a cancer diagnosis, this world is not my home. And he says they speak clearly. It's the Greek word emphanizo, we get the word emphasis. It means we emphasize, we speak very emphatically, this world is not my home. My hopes and dreams aren't here. So if everything that I wanted to have happen in my life, everything I dreamt of as a kid when I grew up and my life would be this way, and for most of us, our life is nothing like what we dreamt, I don't get too worked up because we speak clearly. We emphasize this world is not my home. My hopes and dreams aren't here. So I don't get, I may get sad. I may get discouraged for a time, but I don't give up. I don't quit. He says, we are seeking a homeland. It's a word that means to inquire into, to search, uh, to crave something. That something deep within us is motivating us to pursue 
that blessing that God has for us in a future tense. Verse 15 says, if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, who are we talking about here? Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all of them. Did they come out of a land? They did, didn't they? Where were they originally from? They were from Babylonia. They were from Ur of the Chaldees and some of these other places. They were from wickedness, a place of idolatry. Okay? They, had, they could have looked back upon their ancestral home and say, that's where I was comfortable. That's where I had a house. It's where mom and dad live. It's where our family lives. Why don't we just go back? Especially Abraham. Remember it said Abraham, he committed to living in a tent. Hey, we could give up this tent living and go have it good over here with mom and dad back in the homeland. He says they could have, if they contemplated, thought about returning back. He says if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, but they didn't, did they? They remained faithful because God had a promise for them, a promise of a different land, a better land. And that's what kept them faithful to their cause. It's why they didn't look back. We're not supposed to look back on the life God called us from with longing eyes. Lot's wife tried that. How'd that work out? God offers her salvation, begins to walk out of the city. Initially, she looks like she's going to be saved, right? She, this plant springs up for a little bit, but then what does she do? She turns and she looks back. And again, it's not just a looking over your shoulder, this meant she, was, she stopped and she pondered Sodom and she longed for what Sodom had. I don't, I'm not so much interested in God's salvation here anymore. I'm not interested in following God into the wilderness to suffer. I really would rather just go back where my needs are met and I'm comfortable and it's familiar. I wanna go back to that. And God turned her into a pillar of salt and burned her with fire. It was a, it was, she was served as her own sacrifice. We don't look back. God's children don't look back. We don't look longingly back at what we've been delivered from and say, man, I sure wish I was a part of that old world that God saved me from. I mean, is there any believers here who truly believe that? You look back on the life God saved you from and you say, man, I wish I could return to being like the world again. I wish I could return to just living in sin and doing whatever I feel like. That was the, those were the good days, right? I wanna go back to that. You don't, a Christian doesn't look longingly back on the days in the life God saved him from any more than a Jew would look longingly back at Dachau or Auschwitz. We don't look back longingly at that which we've been saved from and say, man, I sure wish I could go back and live in sin again. If, we, if that is the longing of our heart, friends, you need to take a very good, strong look at the gospel again. Because Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 61, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, again, this is that idea of looking back longingly, I want to return to the old life. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Fit for the kingdom of God means if we're looking back and wishing we could be part of the world, we're looking back longingly at the world, we want what the world wants, it's evidence that our heart is not converted. Our heart would never want to go back. No matter how hard my life is now, it's not that. I don't want to go back in. I don't want to go back to a life of sin. Instead, it's because, verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Better has the idea that it's, it's the same kind of thing, well, but better. It's the same kind of thing. So heaven, this ought to encourage us a little bit. Heaven is not going to be some bizarre place, some weird sci-fi movie that we've never seen uh, before. It's not going to be the Emerald City of Oz or anything like that. It's going to be a better version of what we have today. Better of the same kind. Remember, the Bible says we're not going to live in heaven. It's not going to be Bugs Bunny. When I was a kid, he used to watch that, and he'd go up to the clouds, and he'd be wearing white robes and plucking harps, and there was nothing to be seen for miles, just clouds. And I was, as a kid, hated the day when I had to go to heaven because it was just going to be so boring. That's not heaven at all. In fact, the Bible doesn't even say, if you want to be technical, that we're going to live in heaven. I know what you mean when you say it. But the Bible talks about us living in the new Jerusalem in the heavenly city on earth. All the stories we tell about, you know, the pearly gates and all that kind of stuff, we're describing the new Jerusalem, that, the Father's house in which we have a room. But the new Jerusalem, Revelation says, is going to descend from heaven upon where? The new earth. Notice that it's a new earth. What happened to the old earth? Peter tells us. It's going to burn up with fervent heat. Everything you see here, these lights, these walls, Unity Baptist Church is not going to last forever. This building's going to burn up. Your prized baseball card collection, it's going to burn up someday. It's going to be gone. Everything here is going to disappear one day. And God's going to make a new earth. But Hebrews here says it's going to be a better version 
of what we have now. So it's not gonna be unfamiliar to us. We're still gonna have trees, but they're glorified trees. They're, they're trees that have been redeemed back. They're not fallen. We're gonna have animals in the, eternal, in the eternal state on that new earth, but they're not gonna be eating each other. They're not, going to be, uh, they're not going to be devouring your livestock. They're not going to be digging holes in your yard. They're not going to be chasing you down when you're camping. It's going to be a beautiful new earth. It's going to be, the Bible says, a better version of what we have today. What we have today, let's acknowledge, it's beautiful. It declares something about God, but it's, it's fallen. We live in a fallen, darkened, cursed universe. It's a, it's, it's, it's a far inferior version of what we have to look forward to. So why would you want to live for this earth? Again, it's kind of like when we used to live in China. And uh, we'd, we, we couldn't really get legitimate technology most of the time. And so we would go down to the computer market. And that, that's the way everything is in China. You have markets. So all the electronic stores in town are in one place, which is actually pretty convenient. You know, and all the food is in one place. And you just go to this place and it's all right there. And so we'd go there, we'd go shopping for a phone. And we'd see a phone that looked an awful lot like an iPhone. And so we'd get it and we'd pick it up. An initial look, it looks like an iPhone. We start playing with it and we go, huh. But the longer you look at it, you think there's, there's some things wrong with this phone. It, it, the operating software isn't quite the same. It won't run the same software that I want to run on it. Uh, it's got a battery life of like 27 minutes. <laughs> and you, you look on the back of the phone, it doesn't say iPhone. What does it say? iPhone. It's a iPhone. You don't want to get a iPhone. What is a iPhone? A iPhone is a cursed, inferior version of what is better, of the true iPhone something that has a real battery life, that plays the apps that I want to do. And that's, in a very real sense, that's what we have here on earth. You don't want a high phone existence. Don't make this earth and your existence here all that your life is about, trying to make all the money you can so you can buy a great house, you can have a great car and, and go on wonderful vacations so you can live your best life right now. The Bible says that by faith, we look beyond this life to something that's better. We're living for that kingdom. That's what faith is, by the way. It means that when God describes a future kingdom, we can see it as though it's here right now. We're like those people on those TV shows that can, they can walk into this beat-up old house, you know, this, these fixer-upper people, and they can see things in that house before they're there. You're looking at a dumpy house with trash everywhere, and the walls are hanging off, and they're like, oh, this is going to be great. <laughs> and you're having to take it by faith. Oh, this is going to be this. We're going to do this. We're going to knock out this wall. We're going to make this all beautiful. And they can see something in the future as if it's here right now. And by faith, we do that the same thing with the kingdom of God. We see a future thing that God promises as though it's right here, right now, available to me. And we live for that as though it is a present reality. It's kind of like Martin Luther who once says, I have two dates on my calendar, today and the day that I stand before God. He lived for that future date as though it's so real, it changed and impacted how he lived every day. He lived every day as though he was going to give God an account of his life that night. And it changed the way Martin Luther lived. He didn't live for this momentary pleasure, for momentary things. Instead, number three, he waited, like these folks, waited on God's praise. It says, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Therefore, begs the readers to connect what was just said with what we're reading right now, what was just said. He says, therefore, because the believer is waiting for a heavenly city, he's not living for this tired old earth that's going to burn up. He's living for a future city. Therefore... God is not ashamed to be called their God. In other words, he's proud of them. Do you care that your daddy's proud of you? I think everybody deep down wants to know their dad's proud of them, don't you? You may not even have a good relationship with your dad, but you wish you did so that he could be proud of you. You want somebody who is over you, somebody that's mightier than you, somebody who's been around longer than you, to look at your life and say, you know what, well done. You did well here. This is what God feels about those who have lived a life of faith. People who aren't living for the momentary and the temporary. People who are living for the future and the eternal. God looks upon this and says, I'm not ashamed to have you in my family. I'm not ashamed to bring you into my home. I'm not ashamed to call you one of my children. Now, God does feel shame when people live in sin. Oh, God, oh, our sins, remember, when we sin against God and we don't live by faith, we don't sin against an apathetic God who does not feel our pain. Even in Genesis chapter six, in verse six, during the days of Noah, it says the Lord regretted that he made man on earth and it grieved him in his heart. 
Some of your translations might even say repented. By the way, God didn't repent and God doesn't regret in the same way that we do. God didn't make a mistake and say, man, I know better next time not to do that. That's not what God's communicating at all. Uh, in fact, this word regretted is a word that means ashamed of, to feel pity on, sorry for, and just be like, God's just shaking his head. That the sins of man on earth wound the heart of God and it groan, he groans in his spirit. It says it grieves him in his heart. That when we sin against God, it grieves his heart. The Bible tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit by which we are sealed. We don't want to grieve God by our sin. Instead, we want God to be proud of the fact that we are walking by faith. Like Adam and Eve, every day we are presented with opportunities. Take the fruit and sin, immediately reward myself right now, or wait on God's blessing. And God is not ashamed. He is proud of those who lay aside immediate blessing and they live for future blessing. They're gonna live obediently unto him. In fact, if you look throughout the Bible, God wants always asks us to wait, doesn't he? To wait on him, to persevere in doing right. Don't give in and sin. Persevere in doing right, knowing that in the end, it's gonna be worth it. Hang on, hold out there. Who is it that wants us to be gratified right now? It's Satan, doesn't he? I mean, you look at Satan's temptations throughout the Bible. It's always to, you should be happy right now. You should be gratified right now. Look at the temptation of Jesus Christ. Jesus in the wilderness, he's there for 40 days. He hasn't eaten a thing. You and I, we fast for like three or four hours and we, we call that a, a, a high watermark on our spirituality. You know, Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness and Satan comes along and he tempts him. Here, have bread. Was it sinful for Jesus to eat? Of course not but it would have been sinful for Jesus to eat right then because he had committed unto the Lord to be fasting. And Satan wanted him to gratify himself right now. You're gonna, because you're gonna eat someday, Jesus, why don't you just eat right now? Don't wait on God, don't trust him, don't persevere in obedience, gratify yourself now. Then he leads Jesus up onto an exceedingly high mountain and says, all these kings of the world can be yours. Are the kingdoms of the world going to belong to Christ? Yes. But right now they've been, Satan's allowed to be the prince and the power of the air. And so Satan offers him these kingdoms. Why wait on God? Have it right now. Third temptation takes up the pinnacle of the temple. Hey, wouldn't you like it if all these people worshiped you right now? Will all the nations worship Jesus one day? There will be a day where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But it's not right now. And so Jesus has to wait. Why? Because we have to wait. Jesus lived faithfully and obediently because we have to wait. We have to persevere. We can't give in. We can't just sin. We can't just have immediate gratification and live for immediate gratification, even though the rest of the world is living that way. Why, you know, why wait on physical intimacy? Just shack up now. Why wait? That comes from Satan, not God. Hey, somebody did you wrong? Why wait on God? <laughs> why wait on God to avenge you when you could do it yourself? Go ahead and slander them. Better yet, get out of the car and punch that guy who cut you off in traffic. Do it now, immediate reward. You want these things to make your earthly life more comfortable? Why wait until you can afford it? Get out the credit card. Go down to the auto dealership and buy a brand new car. You don't need some old car, you deserve better. By the way, that's always Satan's lie. When he gets us to thinking we deserve, what do we truly deserve as God's people on earth? We deserve hell. The wages of sin, what we have earned, that's, that's our true earnings. What have we earned? What do we deserve? We deserve to be isolated from God, and it's only by his mercy and grace that we get otherwise. So when you start hearing voices in the back of your head saying, you deserve this, you deserve this, look out for you, you need this, you deserve this, gratify yourself right now, you don't have to take that. Friends, understand that that doesn't come from the word of God. There's a different voice speaking into our heart and life at that point. And so... God's children wait on God. They persevere in doing good, knowing that it's going to be worth it someday. We are greeting our reward from afar off. Therefore, God shall not be ashamed to call their God. He's proud of us. This word to be called their God literally means surnamed. God is not ashamed for us to take his family name, to be called Christians. God is not ashamed to put our picture on the mantle. God is not ashamed even insofar as God is gonna bring us into his own house. And if that doesn't impress you, friends, I don't know what will. The fact that you and I as, as sinners 
in rebellion against God and God who should have cast us into hell doesn't. And not only does he not cast us into hell, he brings us into his house and he calls us one of his own and he prepares a room for us in his house. That should impress us, sort of like uh, 1 John 3, 1. It says, see or behold what manner, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. John never overcame the fact that he was made part of God's family. Verse 16 shows why we persevere. He says, for they have prepared for them a city. Again, this city we've been talking about all morning, it's the new Jerusalem that's gonna descend out of heaven, and it's gonna be amazing. 1,500 miles long, that doesn't sound like a city anymore, it sounds like a country. 1,500 miles wide and 1,500 miles high. I don't even know what that is. There's nothing on earth that corresponds to that. That would go up into the atmosphere, which ought to tell you then something a little bit about the new earth that God is preparing for us. It's nothing, it's, it's nowhere near the size that we have today. This is just, the new earth is gonna be this enormous thing. It's capital city, it's 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. And the reason we persevere and hold on is because there's the promise of a future blessing. We are waiting on his city. You know, at the end of that movie, The Patriot, you see the flag come out again, don't you? The, it's, they're in their final battle, and things aren't going well for the Americans and their revolution. And uh, the, the British dragoons are coming through on horseback and their swords, and people are getting cut up and beat up. And they sound this bayonet charge, and the infantry starts moving forward. And the American soldiers, they begin to lose hope, and they begin to run backwards. They're not cheering anymore. And, and you see Mel Gibson, he's kind of coming up, he's confused. He sees the American flag going in reverse, going the wrong direction. They've given up, they've lost hope. And so he takes that flag from him and he marches it back forward. And the moment that flag starts moving forward again, it's, it's almost funny to watch people kind of pivoting on their heels. Oh wait, we're not retreating anymore. Oh, we're going forward. And they start marching forward with this flag. Why? What kind of power did that flag have? It wasn't the flag, but it's what the flag represented. It represented a, a hope, a faith, a future homeland. America, the United States of America doesn't exist yet, but it can. In the meantime, we're supposed to maintain heart. We're supposed to maintain our position. We are to move forward in faith. We're to hold strong to our commitments to God. And they did, and eventually they win the war. And the very end of the movie is when you see him, you know, he meets his bride and they have this beautiful house and evidently they live happily ever after. But that is the life of a believer. Right now, we are still in a time of war. And as we look to the cross, the cross isn't just a reminder of Jesus, but it's a reminder of all of Jesus' promises that he has gone to prepare a place for us someday. And it's out there. But that we can remain committed and firm in our obedience to God and our faith in him because of what he promises us, because of what that cross represents. I close with Galatians 6, 9. It's, a, it's an encouragement for each one of us. Do not grow weary in doing good. Can you grow weary in doing good? You're living obediently, you're living faithfully, you're doing what God asked you to do. You're, maybe you're loving your mate and they're not returning that love. Maybe you're loving your kids and they're rebelling against you. Maybe you're doing right on the job and other people, they're passing you up for promotion. You're, doing, you're persevering and doing good, but you're, you're debating on maybe quitting. That voice in the back of your head, you don't need to do this anymore. You don't have to take this. Give up, quit. Stop coming to church. You don't have to take that. Stop doing this ministry. You don't deserve to be treated like that. Galatians 6, 9 reminds us, do not grow weary in doing good, for in due season, in other words, a time of God's choosing, we will reap if we don't lose heart. That word lose heart just means to, literally it means that our muscles, we relax our muscles. When you're persevering, you're moving forward, your muscles are, are tensed, you're, you're, you're persevering in what you've been called to do. When you lose heart, it's when your muscles relax. <sighs> I give up, I quit. I don't know who this message is for this morning, but God is calling us to remain faithful to what we know to be true, not to listen to the voice in the back of our head that's saying, you know, leave your mate, leave your kids, leave the church, leave your family, leave your ministry, leave your job, quit, 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 quit. This is what Satan wants us to do, to just give up. What does God want us to do? He wants us to persevere, and he promises that if we will pers persevere in doing good, we will reap 
if we don't lose heart. Friends, I pray that to whatever it is that you're being challenged with today, that's something that you're being, something you feel really strongly about. I just need to quit. I need to give up. I need to relax and just give up. Would you persevere and instead continue to walk in obedience and faith just as Abraham did, just as Sarah did, as Isaac did, as Jacob did? They could have gone back and they didn't. They were looking forward to God's promise. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that as we study your word, that we're reminded that each one of us, at times, as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the rest of them were, they were weak at times. And Lord, we feel weak in our hearts. There are times where we feel that voice in the back of our head saying, quit, stop, don't persevere. It's not worth it. You deserve better. Lord, would you help us to be steadfast, to wait upon you, to persevere in doing good, to look to you, look unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Look to him who endured the cross. God, and may that be a hope for us that as Jesus has suffered once for us, that we now have picked up where he left off. It's our time to suffer right now. And none of us love suffering, but God, we look unto you as our example of suffering, knowing that just as Jesus was resurrected from the dead, we'll be resurrected from the dead. Just as Jesus is in glory with you, that one day we will have a glorified body and we will be with you in eternity. Lord, help that motivate us to keep going, not to quit, but to have two dates on our calendar, today and the day we stand before you. Let that drive our decisions and how we behave toward one another, we ask in Christ. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.